I'd like to take just a minute, if I can, and sum up what we've been doing for the past two months. We've been looking at the first two chapters of the book of Genesis to try to wrap our hearts and minds around who God is, who he has made mankind to be, what that relationship is supposed to look like, and what on earth human beings are supposed to do. And we've seen several things along the way. We have seen that we are created in God's image. We've seen that everything is given to us freely to be received and enjoyed as a gift, and that receiving such things as gifts from the Lord himself, we are to steward his creation as his image bearers, as his priests, and to cultivate and to, and to spread that beautiful creational garden with the Lord across the face of the earth. That is life in the garden with God. And then we open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And the majority of our Bible from this point on takes into account something drastic and dreadful that takes place. And so we're going to look at the first seven verses of Genesis 3 this morning. And I'm going to do my best to not overload you with information. But this is a passage that is so rich full of truth that not only gives us theological categories to think in, but experiential and real categories to think in. Because you and I know the world that is about to be presented in these three verse, these seven verses. We don't know the world of Genesis 1 and 2. That's very foreign to us, but we know these verses. And so let me just read for us um, Genesis chapter 3. This is one of these unique Sundays, honestly, where the lectionary just happens to line up really, really closely with what we're looking at. I mean, how many of our passages talked about serpents, right? Well, here's the very first introduction to a serpent. And it's right here in Genesis chapter 1. I'm sorry, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I think the best way I know how to do this is for us to just walk right through this passage verse by verse. We are introduced in this passage to a serpent. No matter how many philosophers want to discuss this question, no matter how many curious people want to understand the origins of Satan and where he came from, the Bible simply doesn't tell us. The Bible simply assumes this reality and goes forward with it. In fact, John, and all the way at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, will identify this particular serpent as the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Right here in these seven verses, we are watching the whole world being deceived. And I want to focus in this morning very specifically on why we as Christians need to understand this reality and why it is not helpful 
for us to just think of sin and brokenness in the world as God said do this, they didn't do it, therefore that's sin. That is true, but there is so much more understanding going on here if we take the time to walk through it slowly. And so what I wanna do is I wanna just talk for a minute about how it is that temptation works. And the first thing I wanna draw your attention to is what shows up in the very beginning. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We talked about this idea of the Lord God. God in chapter one is this magnificent, huge, glorious, transcendent creator who creates all things from a cosmic level. And then in Genesis chapter two, we were introduced to this word Lord in all caps. And we talked about why now it is the picture of this covenant keeping God who gets down in the dirt and he crafts man from the dirt. He's personal, he's intimate, he's relatable. He speaks to the human beings and they can respond to him. So the narrator here is telling us that the Lord God created this garden, but I want you to watch what happens in the exchange between the serpent and Eve. The Lord God is removed from the narrative and only the word God appears. And let me tell you why that's the case. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve responds and she says, well, God said this. And then he said, God won't really do that. And this won't really happen. Here's the very first thing that temptation does. It makes God into a mysterious creature that you and I don't know anything about. We don't have the opportunity to ask his opinion. We don't have the opportunity to know specifically what he's commanded. Instead, Eve and the serpent have a conversation about God and never once have a conversation with him. You know, it occurs to me as I read Genesis 3 that at any point in this dialogue, Eve could have gone to the Lord and asked him to remind her what it was that he said. But just like Job's three friends in the book of Job, and the book of Job, by the way, would be a fantastic um, explanation or example of this very passage that we're looking at here. Job's three friends give Job all the advice in the world about God telling Job how based on what they know of God, this is how it would apply to Job's situation. Job, if you read the book of Job, has a lot of nasty things to say, both to his friends and to God. But you know what's different and why Job is justified at the end of the book? The Lord says that Job has spoken about him rightly. Do you know why the Lord says that? It's because everything Job says is spoken to the Lord. It's not spoken about him. The Lord can handle the worst of our hearts and our angry frustrations if we were to be honest enough to pour them out, but they can't be talked about him. They have to be directed to him. And that's the personal nature of the Lord that was introduced to us in chapter three. And it is that personal nature of the Lord that the serpent neglects to introduce to the discussion. And look at what he says. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we know what the Lord God said. He said it in chapter two. You may eat of any tree in the garden, but you may not eat from this one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But here's the second thing that temptation does. It not only depersonalizes God, but it focuses in on what you can't do, not what you can one of the fundamental things about being in right relationship with God is he is here eagerly to give and to share and to express his love to the whole creation. He wants to give us good gifts. But in our minds, we now think the idea is what is he withholding? 
We don't tend to look at freedom as what we are able to be free to do. Many of us define freedom as who can't tell me what to do. That's a reversal, and it happens right here in Genesis. The enemy is tempting the woman, not with all that God has graciously given. He's only drawing her attention to what the Lord has forbidden. And in a minute, the enemy is going to prompt Eve to think that the reason why God's holding out on her is because he doesn't want her to be like him. When in reality, it's very possible that maybe the reason the Lord doesn't want people to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil is because we aren't capable of that kind of knowledge. How many of you as parents don't let your kids in on everything weighing on your mind as a parent? You know why you don't? Because your kids can't handle that. They're supposed to play, or then they're supposed to go to school, or they're supposed to do their chores, or they're supposed to love their siblings, which is hard enough for every kid in any family. No reason to give them more than they can handle. The enemy focuses in on restrictions. And Eve responds, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I want you to watch what happens here. The serpent depersonalizes God. He heightens the things that the Lord has forbidden, not the massive amount of things the Lord has approved of and freely given. And now what she says is, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. True. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Question, how many trees are in the midst of the garden? Eve thinks there's one. Genesis 2, based on the Lord God's own words, suggests there are two. There is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there's also the tree of life. In Genesis 2, 9, it says, Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These two trees in the midst are here for you and for me, all humans, to make a choice. Will we, from the tree of life, receive our life as a gift from the Lord, receive our identity as his image bearers and as human beings commissioned to steward his creation, will we receive that freely from him or will we reach out and take for ourselves what we believe we need to properly rule the world well, reach out and take for ourselves what we believe we need to shore up our own identities, which one will we choose? The enemy here has not only bypassed the gracious provisions of the Lord, but when Eve now responds to his questions, she's also forgotten the gracious provisions of the Lord. She's forgotten that at any point the tree of life is among the trees of the garden that she's free to take from. She is free to receive her life, receive her identity, receive the love and the goodness and the trust that the Lord freely wants to give the world instead of choosing for herself what that is going to look like. Once the enemy has her here, it's a very short step for him to complete the cycle 
The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here's a temptation that Eve, that the woman rather, finds very difficult to pass up. It's a temptation that has slowly and steadily twisted words and made them do certain things. And if I could go back one more time, I almost forgot about this part where, where Eve says, God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And I've read several commentators or pastors who suggest, you know, right here is the very first time that legalism of any kind has snuck its way into religious settings. Legalism. The idea that you can add something to the commands of the Lord, just extra special precautions put in place to ensure that you don't under any circumstances ever transgress the commands of the Lord. That's a possibility. I think the Pharisees got stuck with this kind of thing. They knew it was wrong to work on the Sabbath, so they decided to add a whole sorts of laws on how many steps you could take, how many feet you could walk on the Sabbath before it was considered work, and then they would bind people under these laws. It's starting to spiral out of control really quickly, and right here is why. In verse 5, the serpent for the first time implies motive into a good, gracious kind God. He tells the woman why it is that the Lord doesn't want her to eat from this tree. God knows that when you do, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And by the way, God doesn't want you to be like him. Now, clearly at this point, the woman doesn't remember what we're all told from Genesis chapter one. And that is, when the Lord says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see, the man and the woman made in the Lord's image were already like God. Nothing needs to be added to them to make them like him. Nothing at all. So verse six says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I want to draw your attention to verse 6, because this is right where it happens. When the woman saw that the tree was good. Now, if you're a really, really close reader of the Bible, you've heard those words before in that order minus the woman. This is the first time in the Bible that anyone other than God is said to have seen something and labeled it good. Seven times in Genesis 1, we read, and God saw that it was good, 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 number seven, and God saw that it was good. But here, the woman is deciding for herself that what the Lord said was not good was, in fact, good. Do you see what she's done? She's chosen to call good what the Lord has called evil. And if the Lord's ways are good and they produce life, and the woman chooses that which the Lord forbids, 
then what she has chosen is death. If you call black white and white black, you have no path forward. There's no option for you. In fact, from this point on, we see unraveling in the biblical narrative themes and keys for us here. And it it follows like this. Somebody sees something, they label it as good, they reach out, participate in it in some way, and then they seek to hide from the results that come as, as a result of that decision. Let me give you an example. In Genesis chapter 16, when Sarah and Abram cannot have a child, they have an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. In Genesis chapter 16, it says that Sarah saw her servant Hagar. She took her, she gave her to her husband, who went into her to conceive, and then Sarah, in getting upset that now Hagar was able to give birth and she wasn't, cast Hagar away. She removes her from the scene. That is the fall of Genesis 3 happening all over again in the father of the Jewish nation. Or in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph's brothers look, they see him coming. They label him what? Here comes this dreamer. They make an assessment of him. They determine that he's not good. Then it says what? They took him, they threw him into a pit, And what happens when they go back to their father? We don't know, dad. I I mean, they they cover it up, right? They tell him an animal must have devoured him. Or this one's probably the most famous. David is on a roof in 2 Samuel 11. He looks over and he sees a beautiful woman. In Hebrew, the word for beautiful is the same word for good. David sees her. He sees that she's good. And he sends someone to take Bathsheba, brings him to her. They get together Bathsheba gets pregnant, and what does David do? I've got to hide this. I've got to cover this up. How am I going to do that? I'm not married to this woman. Well, if I kill her husband, then they'll think that he got her pregnant, and I'll be scot-free. It's a repeated pattern that grips the hearts of even the faithful all through the Bible. It starts right here in Genesis chapter 3. You and I see things all the time. We perceive things with our own eyes. We label them as good, as right in our own eyes. We reach out and take them. And the freedom that the enemy offered us secretly at what we would obtain if we took from that tree brings shame and it brings guilt. And we need to cover it up because we intrinsically know we shouldn't have this. This is not right in some way. And then what do we do? Bring it to the Lord? Not typically. We tend to hide it. The eyes of both of them were opened. In a sense, the enemy was correct. But now with their open eyes, they see their nakedness. And what in Genesis chapter 2 was a reason not to be filled with shame is now every reason to be filled with shame. Because of this decision, because of this deception, because of this action, being open, vulnerable, and naked and transparent is no longer considered a good thing. Nobody thinks that. And so you and I and every person before us and every person going forward is a master expert at covering ourselves up. Here Adam and Eve sew fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths because they do not want to be part of nakedness. It's the first thing that they choose in response. 
And so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for a Christian community who's gathered around the person of Jesus? We read about Jesus' words in John chapter 3 that he's not come to condemn the world. He's come to bring light to the world, but people don't want to see their light because their deeds are evil. We would rather keep ourselves in the dark. We would rather keep those vulnerable and secretive parts of ourselves hidden away because we don't want to deal with it. David Benner, in probably one of my favorite books, says this, the core of the lie that Adam and Eve believed was that they could be like God without God. Don't seek your cues from him. Don't ask him what he wants for your life. Just put yourself in his position and make that decision for yourself. I think from that point on, we have become experts at living this type of a life. We become experts at determining for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We're going to look at this in a future week, but how how easily we now are and how confident many of us now appear to be at how easy it is to determine for other people what their good and evil is supposed to look like and how we are basically supposed to operate and to function in their own lives. But as a result of this, right here in verse 7, humanity is now afraid to face their real selves. And so people hide, they cover themselves up, and they pretend that their nakedness is not really there. We believe that to be truly exposed is no longer a good thing. And people throughout the ages have used all sorts of things as fig leaves. Some people pretend that they just don't care. They just don't care about life and they tell you that they just don't care and they're just kind of like hardened to life. But many of them deep down inside do care. They've reached out for an identity for themselves. They've tried to make a name for themselves. They've tried to believe and justify within their own minds that they are a worthwhile person in the world. And when somebody threatens those coverings on them, They get upset. Some people spend all their time exposing others in order to shift the focus away from themselves. Any partisan political discussion you might find about today on the news, um, they love this one. Every problem in the world to a conservative is a liberal's fault. Every problem in the world to a liberal is a conservative's fault. If we can just show how somebody else out there is worse than me, then guess what I'm doing? I'm taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I'm filling myself up with my goodness. I'm filling myself up with how right I am over against all of you who aren't as good as me. It's repeating the fall. I've got two choices in the garden. I can receive my life freely from the Lord God, or I can take it for myself. And every single day of your life and every day of mine, we are faced with the same choice. Some people use anger or force or violence in order to convince other people not to point out their weaknesses. I think these might be your classic gangs or your classic bullies in school. Did you know that bullies are some of the most insecure people on the planet? They don't know what to do with that insecurity. They've lost their way. 
Some people, believe it or not, even use Christian morality to cover up their nakedness. Here's what I mean. Morality has been the number one way throughout human history to deal with our problem of shame and guilt without God. Here it is. You want to be like God without God. Okay, so God gave me a bunch of rules. I'm just going to do them. I'm going to obey them. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to go to church every week. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to love better. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to give more. And because I do, God's certainly going to love me. And guess what happens when somebody calls into question your faithful service to the Lord? How dare you? You don't know a thing about me. And what's happening is our identity is threatened by those on the outside because we've reached out and taken our identity for ourselves, even good and right things like the laws of the Lord. Moralism is any attempt to change yourself, fix yourself, or transform yourself and deal with your own guilt and shame in the power of you being good. And so guess what happens? People who take this covering become the most judgmental people on the planet because they have no tolerance or patience for anybody else who does not work as hard as they do at doing the right thing. And so people who cover themselves here have a wicked keen eye for laziness in the world. And they don't have any tolerance for people they perceive to be lazy because they are such hard workers. What are they doing? Their hard work is what they take to cover themselves up. And woe be unto that person in the world who doesn't do it the same way. Some people just get defensive. You know what defensiveness is? I do. It's my life story. <laughs> defensiveness is anything you do to avoid painful self-awareness. I don't want you to point that out. I only want you to talk about my good qualities. Don't tell me what I've done wrong that needs improved. Why, why am I threatened when somebody points out flaws? It's because I've built around me a system of always doing things the right way at the right time. And how dare you put a chink in my armor? How dare you rip a fig leaf off? That's going to expose me. I'm going to become vulnerable and naked, and I don't like that. I've already determined that's a bad thing. So what's the solution? That's the world we live in. So what do we do about it? I think the very first thing we do is we stop trying to cover ourselves. Later on in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord God himself will come and he will cover the man and the woman himself. It's a pattern that the Lord will repeatedly do all through the Bible. We, number one, admit our nakedness and our emptiness before God. And then we step into the light and we confess our sins. Ever since Genesis 3, you and I are extremely comfortable in the dark. It is very easy, and it's even easier now that we all wear masks to literally or figuratively wear masks. Only tell another person the things about us that we wish them to know. And we keep all the ugly, dark, secret things hidden away in the dark. Jesus says the lights come into the world and the reason why people don't go right up to the light is because they love the darkness. We've grown comfortable there. That's become a second home. 
but it's not the way he desires it. And so all through our service, we will confess our sins and then we will receive his forgiveness and absolution for our sins. And what we are doing in that moment in our service is we are allowing Jesus to cover us. In Revelation 12, John tells us that that great serpent, the dragon, he is the accuser of the brothers. He accuses us to ourselves, accuses us to one another, accuses us before God. And John says that the faithful have conquered this dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And what he means is when the enemy accuses you of being selfish, of being a narcissist, of being too self-centered, of being arrogant, we don't defend ourselves. Defending yourself is our attempt to be self-righteous. It's our attempt to say, your assessment is wrong, and I'll show you why your assessment's wrong. It's because my assessment is right. Have you ever read this passage? This one is weird to me. I never knew what to do with this for years. But here's what, Paul says something like this to the Corinthians. It's really weird. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not, I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. The Lord is the one who offers the assessment of us. And this is why sin and death entered the world through taking food that was forbidden to us. And life is restored through receiving food that was freely given to us. When we get to this point in our service, I want you to pay attention. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. We know that the cross on which Jesus was crucified was in fact the tree of life. Arms open wide for the Lord God to communicate once again, I am giving you life. I am giving it to you freely. This is not for you to reach out except that I am giving it to you. Now you may take. Take and eat. I'd like to end our time this morning by talking about us here. There's a book I read several years ago called Soul Care, and it um, does just that. It cares for the human soul. And for a gathering like this, for a gathering like this in a church, or a place where Jesus has invited us to deal honestly and openly with him and with one another, these words from this book, I think, are incredibly powerful, and I'm just gonna share them with you because this is and has been ever since I read these words my perfect vision for what I want the church to be. We cannot heal that which we will not admit. God cannot cleanse that which we will not confess. We are often reluctant to admit the ugly, broken, and sinful parts of ourself, but to the degree that we deny these realities, we live in bondage to them. In true community, 
people live honest, open, honest, and confessional lives in a culture of grace. There is no hiding or pretending. Secrets are toxic to the well-being of the soul. If you are a leader in the church, one of your primary jobs is to create the right kind of culture. We must create a grace-filled atmosphere where people can confess their sins. The only place on the planet where people who carry around guilt and shame and comfortably dwell in the darkness should ever be able to be freely themselves and freely transparent and freely vulnerable should be the church. And at the exact same time, that reality is so beautiful and so precious, the serpent attacks that almost first. This is why, historically, the church, sadly, is sometimes the last place you feel safe being your true self. Why? Because we're expert judges. We're experts. It wasn't enough in the fall to take God's job in deciding what was good and evil. We're like, well, we're on a roll now. We might as well take his next job, which is to be judge. And that's precisely what we've done. People now believe that what they see as good is good. And what they see as evil is evil. And guess what? Of the 7 billion people on the planet, we have 7 billion different definitions of what is good and what is evil. And so what do we typically do? Well, my definitions clearly are correct. Yours are clearly wrong. And what's the next step? I'll just judge you. You clearly haven't thought through this as much as me. You clearly aren't as devoted to the Lord as I am. Your prayer life would pale in comparison to mine. Or you reverse it. You still operate under those assumptions, but you do see people that you think are better than you. And what happens? You start to see yourself as worthless. We play this game long enough, and you'll get two kinds of people. Proud, arrogant narcissists or embarrassed, shameful, timid, afraid people. Where is the one who can be fully himself and fully God in perfect fellowship with the Lord and in perfect fellowship with people? His name is Jesus. And this is why we proclaim Jesus' name every single week. This is why you and I need Jesus' presence every single week. And to be truly alive in the Spirit as a church, we need to be able to confess as openly to one another as we do to Jesus himself. Because I learned the hard way, thinking that I can just confess my sins to the Lord and move on. But in reality, if I'm afraid to confess them before people, people are the real ones I fear. It is not the Lord. And I'm not inviting you to do something scary. I'm inviting us to think about how, what kind of a posture are we giving to ourselves within this space? What is the culture of Grace Church that we're seeking to cultivate? Would someone from the outside who knows what Christians believe whose lifestyle doesn't match with that, would they feel judged in our midst or would they feel loved? We're not the judge. So when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, it's almost as if we forgot about that. No, he's serious. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to judge. I came to save. 
Now, that's fascinating to me. But it's the kind of culture that I want to see us develop here. And it takes time. It takes getting to know one another. And I know that's hard. Several of you talked to me this morning about how hard this is because we can't even see each other's faces. We feel like we're worshiping in a room with strangers. And to a large extent, we are. So our prayers for our gathering is that this place would become the safe haven. This place would be a place where grace oozes out and it overflows and we're able to be open and we're able to be honest and invite Jesus into those places because only when that happens can he come to set us free. Otherwise, we take the good news of Jesus, we cover it right over and we go right on leaving all these areas completely undealt with. And that's not his desire for any of us. Jesus, goodness, we need you. I I don't know what else to say except thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for just being the way, the truth, and the life and being the light of the world. Jesus, I would ask for those in this room today that by your spirit, you would gently but directly convict them of one specific area where they tend to cover themselves up. Just one. We're your children. We can't handle a lot. Just give us one area in our lives unique to us as your children where we say, yeah, I put a lot of stock in that. My world seems to crumble when that armor gets messed with. And would you meet us there? Would you give us the freedom to confess to you? Would you give us the strength to confess to you and lead us some in this room even, to confess it to someone else. And may there just be grace and receptivity there and love as we speak the truth about what you've come to do for us so that we don't have to live in bondage anymore. We need your church to be free to love people. And we know our keen sense of what we think is good and evil gets in the way. And so forgive us for that and lead us and transform us today into people who more properly reflect your image. We thank you and we praise you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.